Hi, I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, here to let you know about a new and innovative theater major, the BA in Theater and Business Arts at the University of Great Falls. Get the education and experience you need as a theater artist and the business acumen to succeed in your career. Visit broadwaybullet.com and stay tuned to the end of the program for more info. Now, enjoy the show. Volume 702, The Road Less Traveled, February 2nd, 2016. Visit broadwaybullet.com and subscribe so you don't miss an episode. In this episode, Bobby Steggert discusses his new play, Boy, as well as shares some of his unorthodox and refreshing views on a career in acting. Director-creator Bruce Jordan discusses his uber-long-running show, Sheer Madness, and why it has finally arrived in NYC. We hear some new music from composer-lyricist Zoe Sarnak, and director-choreographer-creator James Walski talks about the long journey to NYC for the 60s dance musical, Trip of Love. Special thanks to our location sponsor. Thanks to the Dramatist Guild Fund for welcoming us to their space for today's podcast. Providing the music hall at DGF for writers to use for free is one of the many ways the Dramatist Guild Fund supports writers. I encourage you to find out more about DGF by visiting their website at www.dgffund.org or connecting with them on Twitter at DGFund. A location sponsorship also goes out to the longest-running play in America, Sheer Madness, now finally in New York City at the New World Stages. Go check out this funny show that'll leave you laughing and guessing the entire way through. And no, that's not what they told me to say. I saw the show. Wow. Well, our season premiere, Volume 701, was by far the largest uh, downloaded podcast show we've had since we rebooted so thanks everybody for checking it out. Hope you're back again and, uh, spread the word, uh, let everybody know. Cause, uh, no advertising is better than you guys telling your theater friends. What a great way this is to find out about all aspects of theater. And I want to remind everybody that while we've got edited interviews in the main program here, magazine style, if you're interested in hearing more from anybody here in the program, we do also post all of our unedited interviews so you can hear all the great stuff. And oftentimes, uh, what's in there is a lot of very specific industry advice, uh, for some of the people. So check that out and let's get on with the show. On the boards. 
I am really pleased to be sitting across from <laughs> Bobby Steggert, who is a, a still a rising star, but yet many know him from Ragtime, as well as several other stints on Broadway. He is about to uh, go into rehearsals for a new off-Broadway show called Boy. And yeah, I, I, I'm looking at him and... He, <laughs> I look sort of like a boy, don't I? <laughs> I, I mean, I saw pictures of you, you know, five, six years ago during ragtime, and I swear to God, you look younger now. So I want to know your diet and what <laughs> what you eat. I, I'm, I think it's all genetics. It's all genetics. Yeah. So uh, tell us a little bit first, um, and then we'll go into a lot of other things, but uh, like about Boy, about the script, about why you chose this project. You know, like a script comes along maybe once a year for me where I read it and I just instantly know that I, I must... Uh, must somehow be involved, regardless of the pay or the theater or uh, any of the sort of external forces that one would choose a play from. And this is one of them. It's um, it's based on a true story. And uh, Anna Ziegler has written this amazing uh, uh, fictionalized account of uh, the true story of this young man who was raised as a girl for 15 years of his life. Oh. Um, yeah, I mean, crazy, right? I think I heard, was this a big news story? It was too, a recently? big news story. Uh, well, I mean, it happened in the, in the late 70s, early 80s. Okay. Uh, and uh, this young man uh, in a routine circumcision uh, had his penis burned off with a cauterizer by a, a faulty surgeon. Oh. And uh, <laughs> yeah, crazy. And so back back then, the the leading sex and gender researchers of the period didn't really know what the fuck they were doing. And uh, do they now? Well, I hope a little more, right? <laughs> and uh, and uh, they encouraged this poor couple, this, this these eighteen year old, you know, um, parents uh, uh, to uh, give this baby gender reassignment surgery and raise him as a her. And uh, and for 15 years, uh, this poor kid was raised not knowing what was wrong, but that something was deeply wrong. Uh, back then, you know, the, the idea was that nurture was kind of more mm -hmm. a powerful force in our gender identity. Now we know it's a really, mm -hmm. really major combination of nature and nurture. Um, and so the play is all about this family, the doctor, and uh, it actually starts uh, when he uh, knows he is a man and is living as a man in his mid-20s and is navigating his first relationship with a woman. So how many, how many actors are in this show? It's a five-actor show. It's a popular number now for plays, isn't it? Well, I mean, theater, <laughs> yeah. theater production is, is, uh, is expensive. And, uh, <laughs> and, and, you know, you have to um, be able to produce these pieces, yeah. So when you look at a piece like this and you, and you gear up I'm just curious as an actor, where do you, what level do you want to be at when you head into rehearsals? Like what's your goal from now until when you start rehearsals? I usually uh, like to really have investigated my personal, visceral, emotional um, connection to the character and really have um, made that connection strong for myself. And then I do a lot of research. Um, uh, so in this case, I'm, I'm reading all of the material about this person. I'm reading the book and the articles. Um, I, um, I'm talking to a lot of people who have grown up, um, with some sort of gender confusion. This is a very specific kind of gender confusion. This was a straight man who was being asked to be a woman. Um, but I'm, I'm talking to a couple transgendered people I know who, uh, though their experience was different, there's a parallel. Mm -hmm. Um, and, um, and I'm just reading the play over and over and over again to just get as many ideas as I can so that I can start living in it quickly when we start rehearsing. 
how do you approach people for research like that without making them feel like, ooh, I'm putting you under a microscope <laughs> and you're a, you know. <laughs> uh, just really earnestly, you know, and and letting them know that that I I would love their information and their expertise and um, that they're the expert and I'm I'm there to learn from them. And uh, are they pretty forthcoming, or do you have to? Pride? Do you have to build up a rapport? I'm sure, it depends the upon the person. Or? But the people I've talked to um, have been really excited about this project, and um, uh, and have been very willing to share their experiences because I think again, the, the transgendered movement, especially, is the big conversation we're we're culturally having right now. Um, gay is sort of old now, mm -hmm. old news, um, and so uh, it's really in the air. There are so many pieces, both uh, on film and in the theater, that are exploring the, the transgendered issues. So, um, so I think it's it's been pretty easy to have a dialogue about it. Now, now this is a real person, and he's still alive, right? Unfortunately, he killed himself we, when he oh, no. when he was oh, in his mid thirties. No, you okay. didn't. Uh, the play the <laughs> play really ends the yeah. play ends in his mid twenties, uh, and really it focuses around this relationship with with, with um, the woman who sort of saved him from um, from despair, and uh, and that relationship even in real life was a very good one. So uh, it, the play ends on a hopeful note, um, and unfortunately, a decade later, he, he real did. life didn't real life did not for him. Yeah. <laughs> So who are some of the cast members you get to work with on this production? Uh, you know what, they're still in process, but the person that I know I'm playing opposite, her name is Rebecca Rittenhouse. And she uh, came in, she flew herself in from LA. She had just uh, finished filming uh, a TV show called Blood and Oil, I believe it's called. Um, and uh, she came in, I, I was in the audition room for the auditions for this for this character. And uh, it was just really obvious that, that our chemistry was right and that she was the right person to play the part. And, um, and very happily she accepted. So um, I'm thrilled to, to do the play with her. Now, how, how long ago did you know you were doing this? How long ago did you accept this? Uh, about two months ago. So back, okay. uh, back in October. Is, is this a show where you had any input? Have you had any readings um, back and forth, or is the script like was the script completely finished? As you is this? Been I have developed? not. I have not been part of the development okay. of this play. Uh, this was they 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 approached me to do the production, mm -hmm. um, uh, and I actually don't have much input. It's 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 such a beautifully yeah. written play, and it's it's very soundly structured and created by Anna Ziegler. There's not there's not much to to say actually. It's it's one of the the finest scripts I've read in a long long time. So how often do you? Was this something that was your agent on the lookout for something from you, or how did the script come across your desk at this uh, point in your career? You know, right now I, I have a healthy mix between an auditioning life and uh, and being offered parts, and it's one of the sort of quasi luxuries of um, having done enough work in your community for people to ask you to continue doing it. So I, I think they thought of me for this role. I think the creative team, the director, and and the producers and and the playwright thought of me. Um, well, certainly there aren't a lot of people with your experience and being able to run long who look as young as you yeah and they could Even, have cast someone younger yeah. but i'm um, i think they're Too they're right. depending upon uh you know my particular skill set to really be able to yeah. to uh nail this this character so in, in your past career or let's back up now kind of the beginning what was your first like big break was there a moment that you felt like okay things just got a little easier yeah it was uh it was the broadway production of a 110 in the shade and i played audrey mcdonald's brother in that um, and, uh, it was the first big Broadway show that kind of put me on the map. It was a great character. I, I was really good in the part. And, um, I think people just started to go, oh, who's that kid? We want to, we want to know more about him. Um, and it, you know, I always say to friends who are struggling in the business, all you need is that one calling card. As soon as you have that calling card where people go, oh, you were the guy or the girl in blank, 
mm-hmm. uh, then it gets easier. And so um, that was a really lovely and really exciting like uh, uh, introduction into the New York theater community. So, so what had you done before 110? A lot shape? of regional theater. So you, so you went kind of from regional just to broad. Sort of. I mean, it's it's a little murky. I mean, I I did a lot of plays outside of the city, which was really smart because I I actually built up my skill. I mean, mm-hmm. I was doing like classical plays, and you know, I wasn't just auditioning for the chorus of an ensemble of a Broadway show here. You know, um, and I also did soap opera. Strangely enough, I was on all oh, my yes, children yeah. for a year. Um, uh, in my early twenties and hated the job so much. It was so stupid. Um, really? No, it's high art. Oh yeah. 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 You're right. It's, it's the highest of art. Um, a different definition of high. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> uh, but it was good experience. Yeah. I gained some confidence. I, I made some money. I, I and then, uh, and then wonderfully, as soon as I got kicked off the, um, the soap opera, I started getting off Broadway plays that pay nothing, but that were really kind of prestigious and exciting. And, and uh, those off-Broadway plays sort of slowly led to a Broadway career. Yeah, so it's kind of just putting one foot in front of the other, tackling what you... Yeah, have. and I think more than anything, accepting work because it's good work, not because it's lucrative work. That's always been my um, my motto, and it's it served me well. I, I, I don't really care about money, and I've always trusted that it'll come somehow, and somehow it has, so... Uh, yeah, I think that's an important thing a lot of actors need to remember is some of the best opportunities... I'll say, you know, my term for this season that I've been throwing around a lot is opportunity cost. Yeah. You know, that they are, you know, even because some of the gigs, I imagine, even if they do pay, it's not what you could get somewhere else. Of course not. I mean, <laughs> I, any theater artist so. who's doing it for the money is is clinically insane. I mean, you know, you, you just can't, <laughs> unless you're a Broadway star, yeah. you're not going to be making money. Not real money. So uh, how, so how... How concerned are you, like you said, you've established, you've gotten some shows in your belt, but you're not constantly running in a long-running show. Well, that would be boring. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the, <laughs> how, how, do you, how long has it been your longest that you've, you've stayed in a role? I think only about six months. Right, yeah. You know, I, I've, I've certainly signed contracts mm-hmm. for Broadway shows that, that, I, that would contractually run for a year, mm-hmm. but um, they, they all closed early. You you have this big shit eating grin on your face as you say that, which is odd. Well, uh, because <laughs> compared I, to t- other actors, again, I, I just, love it. A I mean, my nightmare actually is is being in a long running show that is not being created, that is not even being rehearsed, that is just sort of running, um, you know, and open and 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 uh, really just a commercial, um, you know, what like <laughs> um, theme park ride, you know, <laughs> practically. I mean, I'm really interested in rehearsing things and building them and, and creating them and then sharing them for the first time with an audience. Um, so I, I really have no interest in, in being in a long-running show. So with, with that in mind, how often, even now, do you have periods where, like, am I going to, is, is this going to keep me going? Of course. Mm-hmm. All the time. Do you mean financially or? Financially, emotionally. Every, oh, I mean, God, yeah. Everything. I mean, yeah, I, I, you know, I, I, I closed a show in August, and and um, my next employment, you know, will be boy in in uh, in January. So that was, you know, this, that's been a whole, almost, uh, you know, half of a year. Mm-hmm. I've, you know, I, I've been teaching acting. I, I'm a college professor too, um, and uh, that that's what keeps me creatively and financially sort yeah. of afloat. But yeah, where do you I, teach? At Pace University. Okay. But it kills me when I'm not in a rehearsal process, when I'm not part of a cast, or when I'm not. Um, getting to tell a story every night. Cause that's, that's what makes me feel most alive and most connected to uh, others and to who I am. So it's, it's not an easy life because there's very little cons- uh, consistency, you know? 
So, given that you teach, what what was your what was your training? Did you did you go to? I'm assuming. You oh yeah, to I went to NYU, got a, an acting degree there, and then uh, went to RADA briefly in London, the Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts, and um, and studied classical theater there for a bit. Are are you a, having done that? Are you an advocate for education in the arts? I think it's it's really yeah. really important. I mean, a, a smart artist is a well, a good artist is a smart artist, and and um, I mean. Your job as an artist is to explore what it is to be human and what's happening in the world. And if you don't know uh, and haven't really investigated your humanity or the world around you, then how can you be an artist? Um, so, yeah, I, I think education and, and learning and uh, informing yourself is, is, is essential. For those maybe high schoolers out there listening who are investigating, wanting to major in theater and act, what do you think is important for them to look for in a program? Acting training. You can always go find a dance teacher or take dance on your own. You can always go find a voice teacher and uh, study scores and cast albums and um, music on your own. It's, it's about becoming the best actor that you can. The, the, the best Broadway performers, if we're talking mm -hmm. about musicals, yeah. for example, are the great actors who happen to be able to sing or happen to be able to mm -hmm. dance. Um, but it's yeah. amazing how few people can really act a song. I mean, if you can yeah. sing well and act it, you're already, even with a cut of talent in New York, you all, you do rise. Yeah, I mean, well, they're different. You know. they're, they're different and then also uh, intrinsically the same. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. They're different in the sense that if you are a musician, you're using your musician's brain and you're thinking about the sound and how it comes out and it's very technical. But if you can't forget all of that and then bring your humanity and your understanding of, of, um, of the story you're telling, then the singing is kind of useless as far as I'm concerned, you know? But even a little bit deeper than acting, um, I'll, I'll ask a couple, a couple questions kind of specifically. How is it important that the school have a reputation or that the school does a New York showcase? I don't know about that. I mean, I mean, practically, if if you want to hit the ground running and, and get an agent, for example, right out of uh, your undergrad program, it's probably important that you have a showcase. Um, and I uh, I would imagine that the schools with good reputations have reputations partly because they're good. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, but I mean, if if you can't afford one of the the huge schools, then um, you know, it, it's uh, it's plausible to get a good education. Either afford or I mean, should a student feel upset if they audition and can't not afford NYU but don't get accepted? Well, I you mean, know. you know, there are exceptions to every rule, mm -hmm. and and there are there are people working who came from a college you've never heard of before. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's really all about how well you um, have integrated your education into. You're, you're performing. You really break the mold of a lot of actors in New York theater. Is that something you like? Is that something you just fall into? I think it's yeah. half and half. I mean, I, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I'm kind of, I'm kind of proud that I bar marched to the beat of my own drummer and, and, um, and I'm proud that I don't care about money and I'm proud that I don't care all that much about, um, fame or, um, awards or any of that stuff. And at the same time, um, yeah, it's just sort of who I am. And I, and I have to think that maybe me being me is, has, has given me great opportunities, and so I'm, I'm going to stick to it, I guess. All right, so um, before we wrap up, do you have any uh, last kind of parting shots you'd like to give? Just some piece, maybe that I haven't asked, piece of wisdom about this crazy industry of show business? Focusing on the privilege of what it is to be an artist, and that is to be a a conduit for real human experience in the same room as your audience. I mean, we're, we're such a technically driven 
society now, and we're all losing the ability to connect um, one-on-one and, you know, eye-to-eye and face-to-face. And um, it's such a privilege, I think, to be a theater artist because you're connecting in the simplest ways in front of people um, in a world where that's becoming really difficult. And uh, I think focusing on that um, can lead to a lot of gratitude and, and knowledge of the fact that we're doing something very important still. Well, well said. And, uh, well, good luck to you with your run on boy. It's running for how long? It's, uh, uh, uh until April 9th, April 9th. Mm-hmm. So not a lot of time for people to get checked up. It sounds like a good time frame for you. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's great. All right. Thank you so much for popping in. We really appreciate it. Thank you. If you are a regular listener, or if you have just discovered Broadway bullet, I have just set up a Patreon page. Please support our program by pledging a dollar amount for each podcast episode. I'm not going to make anything from these donations. All donations will go to expenses in producing the program and providing flexible, part-time jobs to theater students for helping with the editing, follow-up, and more. Visit patreon.com slash broadwaybullet to contribute, or just click the link on our main webpage. Thanks in advance for your support in creating quality theater podcast programming. Listening room. We've got some new music for you from composer lyricist Zoe Sarnak. Her music has been featured by Cutting Edge Composers, New York Theater Barn, The Lilly Awards, and New York Musical Theater Festival, and in concert venues from Playwrights Horizons and New York Theater Workshop to Joe's Pub and the Highline Ballroom. This first song of hers is called Do You Feel the Pain? and it's sung by Blake Daniel and Taylor Noble from the show Painless. A story of Molly, a normal teenage girl in all aspects but one. She suffers from a rare disorder, a chronic insensitivity to pain. In short, she feels no pain. Stranger, truly, more so if you knew me. Ask me, do I feel a thing? Hardened. Maybe how to blame what made me Baby, she can't feel a thing Fragile in a moment dies Part of us that can't survive Learn to survive the strain Do you feel the pain? special 
was Do You Feel the Pain, written by Zoe Sarnak, from the musical Painless, sung by Blake Daniel and Taylor Noble. We're going to hear another song from Zoe a little bit later on in the episode, but let's get on to our next great interview. On the Boards I'm sitting here with Bruce Jordan, who is the director and co-creator of Sheer Madness, many, many companies running all around uh, the country and the world. Uh, it's been, from what I understand, in playing in various iterations since 1979. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> and, and he is still getting everything going, still new productions. After all this time, it's finally opening in, opened in New York City. And uh, Bruce is here to talk to us about all the madness that is sheer. <laughs> <laughs> well... It certainly is a, a, a delight to have finally opened in New York City. I mean, we talk about it as though we've been in previews for the last uh, 36 years. <laughs> and, and I think that's in a way kind of true because from every single production and every performance of Sheer Madness that you do, you learn something, you create something new, and we're grabbing all the best of those things and putting them into the New York production. <laughs> So what, what was it about now? Why New York now? After? Well, very simply why New York now is we initially, when we opened in Boston in 1980, our plan was to play in Boston for eight weeks, make all of our money back, and then come to New York. Well, we played in Boston for eight weeks and didn't anywhere near make our money <laughs> yeah. back, but um we did then go on to a very long run in Boston, you know, where the in the Guinness Book of World Records for the longest-running play in the history of the United States, the Boston production. And so then while we were playing in Boston, the um, – I don't know if you remember the Legionnaires disease that struck Philadelphia in 1976. You're, you were a baby then probably <laughs> still in swaddling clothes. And the um, – Anyhow, there was Legionnaire's disease at this very famous hotel in the heart of Philadelphia called the Bellevue Stratford. And so the Fairmount hotel chain bought this hotel and totally did it over and created this beautiful supper club in the in Philadelphia. And um they and and the people would come on weekends when stars like Peggy Lee and Frank Sinatra were there, but they couldn't get people into the hotel uh, supper club during the week. So they came to Boston and saw Sheer Madness in Boston, and as they say, they made us an offer we couldn't refuse, mm -hmm. so uh, we went to Philadelphia. And then um, we did some research on Chicago, which was just beginning to be the hotbed of theater activity that it is. Yeah, I wasn't aware of the Boston production, but I had heard, I had heard of the Chicago one for uh, you know, a long yeah, time. That's yeah, what... and that ran for 17 years. That's the third longest running mm -hmm. Uh, play in the history of the United States. Uh, Washington, D.C. is the second. But uh, so when we had those three productions going, uh, New York kind of went out of our minds. You know, we thought, why open in New York? Because if they, you know, it's so expensive to mm -hmm. open in New York. And what if they don't like it? Will it harm the other companies? Blah, blah, mm -hmm. blah. 
But anyhow, we have a, a, a wonderful agent who does all of our uh, foreign rights. You know, we're, we're all around the world, thanks to her. And she knew this group of people, Nico companies, who were interested, very interested in sheer madness. And we met them in like uh, late June. And by um, August, we were married. So, <laughs> so it was, uh, they were, they're very, very excited about the project. They have great ideas. They have great press representation. All of the things that we were ourselves not sure about because Marilyn and my partner Marilyn Abrams and I produced the the play in in San Francisco and in Chicago at, at the Kennedy Center in Boston and in Houston and some other places and we just didn't feel as if we had the uh oomph to know all of the marketing in New York and these guys do they're wonderful they 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 said we want to take your play and do what you want done with it. And that's just exactly what they did. <laughs> so what are, what are some of the differences you've seen between producing here in New York? I mean, even though you're not taking on their duties, but what, what have been the different challenges they've faced here versus other? Well, I would say the biggest challenge probably is the amount of competition that you have in New York. You know, I mean, people, people who want to go to the theater have uh, 25 Broadway shows that they can go to and and uh, and, and 30 off Broadway and 150 off off Broadway thousands shows. of off, off <laughs> so you know, and then they have performers playing in the subway and, <laughs> exactly <laughs> yeah they don't have to go far it's true so i think that's the biggest thing is to in new york is to let yourself get known and of course our show is very dependent on word of mouth. Mm -hmm. People come, they see it, they uh, you know, they tell their friends, and we get a lot of people uh, at Sheer Madness who are first time theater goers. Mm -hmm. They aren't used to going into theater, so it, it's uh, it, it takes a little while, usually about uh, four to six months for it to really catch full stride. So, how how has it been going here so far in New York? Well, the yeah. wonderful thing about it is that we have this great cast we have a wonderful cast and they make that audience leave the show every night feeling as if they've had a perfectly good time and so that's very important you know it's it's interactive so we rely on the audience a lot so when we have a big fat audience in there it's a lot easier than if we have 30 people in the mm -hmm. theater you know because the theater holds just under 300 people and uh, it's very intimate but but um you need all those people to, to give you all of mm -hmm. the input you need for the show to work at its best so what have been some of the have you noticed any peculiarities of you know, production or different ways audience react in, in the various different cities? Well, you know, it's funny. Uh, first of all, I think the New Yorkers are a lot freer about their opinion. Number one. <laughs> yeah, they are. <laughs> I think that's one thing. The other thing is it, a lot of it depends on the configuration of the theater. And in this particular theater, the audience is above the uh, stage, so they look, they feel empowered. You know, sometimes the audience is below the stage, and they they're a little more hesitant. But this time, it's kind of like, you know, uh, the Colosseum. They're they're yeah. looking down at this uh, at this group of people, mm -hmm. and they feel very empowered to <laughs> to 
express their points of view. How do you go about directing a show that has so much improvisation and, and audience participation at its core? Well, it's, it's hard. Uh, fortunately, this is about the 40th time that I've uh, directed the show from scratch with mm-hmm. brand new actors. And uh, I've also maintained shows and put many actors into the show during the run of the show. But one of the things that we've done is we've compiled a um, a script that is about four inches thick <laughs> that has a lot of the possibilities that have happened in the past. And that's why I say that it's, it's helpful mm-hmm. to learn uh, the things that worked uh, for you. Do the actors go, oh, my God, are you, you know, serious? It's, they're, they're scared. They get, a little, <laughs> they get a little scared. And anybody who's been in Sheer Madness will tell you this. They'll say it's a daunting job too, because the other thing about it is, you know, when when you're trained, as you know, when you're trained as an actor, mm-hmm. you're you're supposed to follow your storyline mm-hmm. through the play, and you don't know at the beginning of the night whether you're guilty or innocent. Yeah. So there, there's what we call bifurcated acting, which yeah. means that you have to always play that you're innocent. Yeah but show us the possibility that you might be guilty. So uh, that's a that that's a difficult uh, kind of a, a, a stance for the actor to have because they're not quite sure what's going to happen next. And the other thing is that most plays go in sequential order and Sheer Madness doesn't necessarily mm-hmm. do that. So uh, it, it, what, what it means is it goes back to kind of the truth of acting which is know what you know as an actor in that situation and know as much about yourself as possible. And no matter what happens with the audience, you can never get thrown. <laughs> have you, do you have many actors who come into this over the, the various incarnations who haven't had a lot of improv experience? Yes. Yes. And you know, and, and that's why the script is there. Because the good actors won't necessarily use all of the script. They'll improvise themselves. The actors who are not sure of it will use a lot of the hints and helps that are in the script. So, um, and, and you know, the thing about it is, I think the thing that you need most of all is a good, believable actor. And they can um, either improv or follow the script as they feel best now you i I understand do you oversee a lot of the still all the casting choices and all the companies or no no i have a a, i have a um assistant in um dc bobby lorman i have an assistant in um boston chris tarry and they've both been with the company for about 25 years and so they oversee i go up i mean i go down to, to washington three or four times a year and just go over things with them uh, and I go up to Boston three or four times a year. We keep in touch uh, email all the time. Anytime somebody strikes a new joke, mm-hmm. it gets sent to everybody else. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, with that, keeping it updated. Now, there is a writer credit. Well, who's the writer that's on the Paul program? Portner is the original German. He wrote it. Mm-hmm. He's a Swiss. Uh, he was Swiss. He died about 20 years ago. And he wrote it in German okay. originally. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's a German play. Okay. Yeah, it's called Scherenschnitt. 
in German. And Scherenschnitt is that um, practice of using scissors to cut out uh, intricate designs like snowflakes and paper dolls. That's Scherenschnitt. Which, by the way, I have been spelling wrong for the last <laughs> 30 years. Last year, it was the, uh, this year, it was one of the final, it was the final word on the national spelling bee. And it has an E on the end of it, S-C-H-E-R-E-N-S-C-H-N-I-T-T-E. And I've been eliminating the E for 30 years. You know, Sharon shit could be a good title again with all the Facebook and. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's all I seem to get is people sharing shit. <laughs> 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 that's true <laughs> here's the new meme another cat <laughs> well you know uh and facebook of course is so then did he sell the rights or you know or what or did you buy the rights for we it bought the world rights we we actually my partner and i i i used to uh help run a um a dinner theater that i founded in upstate new york in lake georgia new york and so we're always looking for new product. Mm -hmm. And I was at a, a theater in Rochester, New York. I was also starting a theater there in Rochester. Both of the theaters, the Lake George Dinner Theater and the Jiva Theater in Rochester, are both still running and doing beautifully. And um, while I was at uh, this Rochester theater, we did this play called Who Done It that was also based on Sharon yeah. <laughs> and, and it was uh, it was um, a lot of fun. But it wasn't very, the audience loved it, but it wasn't very funny and it wasn't localized. Mm -hmm. And uh, so Marilyn and I, I, I wrote to Marilyn that summer and we used to write back then, an actual letter, you know, mm -hmm. and it's in our office framed. I said, and there's this play that we did, I think would be real good at the dinner theater. I think it's got to be funnier. It's got to be uh, more local, but I think it would be, there's a great part for me. There's a great part for you. Why don't we get a hold of it and see if we get the rights for six weeks in the mm -hmm. summer which we did and then after we did it in the summer in lake georgia new york in the summer of 1978 it created such a brouhaha we said maybe maybe we better get a the some rights some world rights to this which yeah. we did and um so everybody's happy everybody makes a little money and uh and and it's now almost 40 years later so hey well uh, now all you got to do is keep uh Keep Shearman as fresh and, and current for another 35 years. Let's hope. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to take you for another 35 years. To... <laughs> oh, my God. You know, it, it's a lot different when you're, when you're 35 and doing all this stuff. But then as the years go by, it all gets a little harder. But it's still an enormous amount of fun. And the thing is, I get to go get out of my apartment every morning and go to work with six comic actors. I mean, what could be more fun than that? Really keeps you bright and alive. All right. Well, Bruce Jordan, thanks so much for coming down. Well, thank you. This has been an absolute pleasure. I, totally the, wonderful I, I to really meet hope your Mattis runs for quite a while here in New York. It certainly deserves to. I hope so too. It would be, it would be very, very exciting if it did. <laughs> All right. Have a good day. You too. On the boards. I am sitting here with James Walski, who is the director and choreographer of the new off-Broadway extravaganza, Trip of Love, which takes 28 songs uh, that we all know and love from the 60s and blends them together into a non-stop dance and story. That's correct. <laughs> 
How are you doing? I'm doing very well, thank you. Now, this show's been bouncing around for a while. You you went overseas to get this started, right? Or- yes, well, we actually started our workshop uh, in New York, and at the last moment, um, our producer, who is Japanese, made the suggestion that we would take the workshop over to Osaka, Japan. So we went over to Japan and hired a bunch of Japanese dancers, I think about 31. And I took my assistants with me and we went over and did a full four week intensive workshop, which was more or less giving dance classes. We took a physical therapist with us to teach Pilates and how to warm up properly and cool down. And, and that's where the birth of the show began. And from there, the decision to open in Osaka as an out-of-town tryout just kind of came from nowhere. (laughs) So before we left for the workshop, we signed the agreement with the theater and came back to the U.S., started getting everything into order. And then from there, we hired an American company, uh, an American band, our designers, everyone right here in New York. Uh, we held rehearsals at the Baryshnikov Studios uh, downtown on 34th Street, uh, or 32nd, I think it is, I'm sorry, and um, rehearsed. Then we went over to Japan as a company and did tech, did <laughs> previews, and then did an open uh, limited run there in Osaka. And it was a surprise. I just could not believe the work which had transpired from here over overseas especially with the fact that the music became so you know universal Mm -hmm. everybody knew the music and um so that was the wonderful thing about it and we had an incredible amount of children who came to see the show the dance community in japan just came to see it and then we started to get people coming in from korea china india australia we're all flying in to see the show and uh, we had been offered quite a few uh, sit-down productions to go to potentially Seoul, Korea, and to Hong Kong, Macau, uh, maybe come over to Australia for a tour. Um, But our goals were set to either come back to New York or possibly or potentially London. So that's where we put our focus. And that was in 2008, right? 2008. How long did the show run in Osaka? Uh, We had an eight-week open run and then um, you know, the eight-week run after our four-week preview period, and then, of course, our tech period. Mm-hmm. So what was the process then between then, 2008, and getting the show here to New York in uh, 2014? 15! Ah, I'm not yeah. even back. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was actually more complicated than I thought, <laughs> because our scenery had been built in Japan. Our costumes were built here and shipped over. So we had to get the physical production back to the United States. So nowadays going through customs is quite complicated and it's a very long lengthy process. So our scenery, which had to go into storage um, there right off the sea of Japan for a year or two until we could get everything into four massive containers and put it onto a ship and have it sent here. Costumes were coming back as they were being uh, shipped over. Our company came back right away. So it was more or less, it took us a good year to close out the production in Japan before we could go further. And then we spent a lot of time um, going and looking at theaters in London and here in New York City for Broadway um, in the meantime while that was happening. And unfortunately, when Hurricane Sandy hit, 
our entire scenic element of the show was completely destroyed. So that sort of put us in a different ball game because we had now lost our set and we'd have to go back to the drawing board and rebuild. And, um, so that's how big of an extra expense is that uh, when you when you well when you look at a set they could go anywhere between a million on up to build uh, for scenery plus you have to realize getting into a shop could take you up to 16 18 weeks to build uh, depending upon the extent but when the decision was made um, for us that we were going to go to what was used to be called the little Schubert now it's called stage 42 uh, we we had to scale down the show. We cut a good 40% mm-hmm. maybe of the scenery to make it fit into that theater. But we wanted this experience to be grand. That was the most important, you know, sort of goal of myself and the producer that no show this big has ever played off-Broadway with a cast of 23. Yeah, that's huge. A full orchestra. How big is the orchestra? Uh, we have a band of six. Yeah. And um, they play multiple instruments it's quite fascinating to go into the orchestra pit during the run of the show and watching them playing drums going into percussion going into the acoustic going into this guitar or that guitar it's it's really fascinating and they're multitasking the entire show but we kept the trueness of the sound of the show so that when you're coming in to listen to like in the god of Vida, this band sounds like iron butterfly so you're re-reproducing the music Mm. to what the original music used to be and you kind of forget that the Beatles were four (laughs) and the Mamas and the Papas were four and that their music was so grand Peter Paul and Mary Bob Dylan so they didn't have full orchestras that were 20 25 30 piece orchestras Mm. you know we could do that but we're able to uh, replicate the music with a smaller band so how many seats is the house in the... Uh, this is 499. Okay, so it is on the large end of an off-Broadway. Yes. And um, one more seat would make it a Broadway house. <laughs> but we had to remove um, a row of seats in the front so that we could elevate the orchestra pit because we wanted to open the sound into the theater. That was what was very, very important. And to know that we had a live orchestra. It was not tape music by any means, that this was part of the theater going experience. And um, plus we had to move some seats for our sound system. And we installed surround sound inside the entire theater. So like you're wearing headsets now, we wanted the audience to feel as if they're hearing the music the same way as they did in the 60s. So So now uh, directing and choreographing on on such a, a big scale, 28 numbers. Yes. Um, I believe you are talking before we came up here that it's, Pretty much straight dance all the way through. Correct. Yes. How how long is that process? Learning all that and teaching all that and coming up with everything. Well, the the research was what took the majority of the time because every single element of the show has been researched. There's not a dance step in the show that is not from. It's everything is from that decade. So I did a lot of research for the early sixty to sixty three dance styles the proper ways to do the twist and the boogaloo and the jerk and the frug and the monkey and all of those dances so that we were creating them and executing them as they were actually done during that day. A lot of research was done for television dancing, the style of dance from Shindig and Hullabaloo and and um, 
The girl groups, which were iconic in that decade, they did not dance, but they did a lot of arm, what we called armography, which was very <laughs> stylistic to each group, whether it was Martha Reese and the Vandellas, the Supremes, the Ronettes, uh, Ike and Tina Turner and her group, any of them, they had a very specific movement. And so what I did was I researched all of their movement and then I created dance to it. It was sort of in the number called Nowhere to Run is where I pay tribute to all of the famous girl groups of that decade. And then we do the Girl from Ipanema, which is ballroom dancing, which was very traditional dancing of the 60s when the cha-cha and the samba and the bossa nova and all were becoming very popular dances when all the Arthur Murray and the Fred Astaire dance schools opened and Marge Champion was publishing dance books in those days, Edie Gourmet and all of them were doing songs about blame it on the bossa nova and the cha-cha and the girl from Ipanema and the samba. So it became a very important style. So that number is all based on that iconic style of those days. And then we do uh, dance in act two, um, which I pay tribute to Candy Johnson who was known as the shimmy girl of the 60s. I'm sure you've seen the white little short fringe <laughs> um, skirt dresses that this woman used to wear, and she shimmied like crazy to make the fringe just go everywhere. So the shimmy became a very, very popular dance in the 60s. And then we went right up into the kind of the dance style, the hippie styles that were done at Woodstock and at the Janis Joplin concerts and that kind of movement and style. So a tremendous amount of research and dance went into the show. And so when I started teaching it, we basically had workshops every morning so that we would learn how to properly do the twist, how we would do the frug and the boogaloo and the swim and the pony and all of these dances so that the cast learned the vocabulary. So when I said, this is the Dracula and the Frankenstein, mm -hmm. they knew exactly what we were talking about. They knew how to execute it. So it sort of helped the process of teaching. But I had to go into a studio for weeks and weeks and weeks to put the music and with the dance with the music. And it took me a long time, but I wanted to stay true to that, that era. And now there's a story that follows through this as well. Yes, right? there's a, there's, it's a story of a young girl who is an audience member. She's a plant. And um, she comes late once the show has started. And we have four men who are on stage, we call the chessmen, uh, based off of Alice in Wonderland, who come out and retrieve her and bring her onto the stage. And we bring her into this strange world. We tempt her with magic mushrooms. And she takes this, mash this mushroom and it puts her into a dream state. So... It's her dream that she's seeing where she's transported back to the 60s as a young girl. So it's a very simple story of a young girl who's looking for love and the perfect life. But she, as she goes along, she meets the love of her life. They marry. He's politically motivated. And he ends up being killed in a rally. And that's what wakes her up from her dream. And she realizes she's back where she began. And we were called, we were labeled in Japan as the 1960s version of Nutcracker. And it's sort of <laughs> that dance version. But I want people to come to the theater to look at it as a review style show that's entertainment. And you let the music transport you and the dancing. And you come out 
with your own real interpretation. It's like what review shows used to be here in New York City many years ago. And it's reliving the music. And if you really listen to the music of that decade, it tells an incredible story. And every song had something to do with a movement that went on in that decade. Nowhere to Run was a civil rights anthem. Mm -hmm. You had um, If You Go Away, which was a beautiful song that our parents knew because it represented their children going to Vietnam. And of course, you had the political protest songs, um, Where Have All the Flowers Gone, Blowing in the Wind. When you think of uh, Nowhere to Run, which is a Martha Reese and the Vandellas, it's paying tribute to the girl groups of that decade. I use Boots Are Made for Walking mm -hmm. as a tribute to the television era for Shindig, Hullabaloo, mm -hmm. Ed Sullivan, all the variety shows of that decade. So it's, it's really these characters that you're meeting represent an iconic group of people in that decade, and they also represent how life was changing in that, that time. And the audience has been having a good time. They have, and it's been <laughs> interesting. We we have a lot of people who stand up and start dancing, especially in a song called "Wipe Out," which is the, it's about a six or seven minute number about the beat at the beach, and they get up and start doing the twist and clapping, and it sort of pulls them into it. And it's really nice to hear them singing "Moon River" while the show is playing. You hear the audience singing "Moon River," and boots are made for walking, and it's it sort of inspires them to want to sort of go back and relive what, what they remember, their memories. All right. Um, any closing shots you'd like to get to audiences out there about Trip of no, Love? No, just come see it. It's very unique. It's fun. Um, it's like a walk down memory lane. And there's a lot of little hidden messages in the show. I mean, even when you watch Moon River, people don't know that the moon that's on the projection is actually the moon from 1969, from when Apollo landed on the moon. So there's a lot of those little hidden things that are happening throughout the show. And, um, but it's just, we want the audiences to come, have a great time. If you feel like dancing and singing, go at it, you know, <laughs> just have fun. So. All right. Well, uh, James Walski, thank you so much for coming thank in. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Fascinating story. Have a great run. Good. Thank you. Listening room. As promised, we've got another song from you from Zoe Sarnak. But I do want to remind you, if you are a composer out there or you have a friend who's into uh, theater and cabaret composing and you'd like to be featured, uh, send me a link to your tracks at broadwaybulletnyc at gmail.com. I do listen to them and I've featured a good percentage of uh, who's sent stuff in. So one more song here from Zoe. This is in a more folky style. The song is called Mother's Mother. And it's performed by Taylor Noble about helping a parent through losing a parent. Rest your head, don't look up at the fire. You might feel more warmth than what you see with your eyes. The storm has passed, but day won't break And you had the most beautiful mother You had the most beautiful mother You 
had the most beautiful mother One day we'll cross the sea Of black and white gray You've been adrift on I will keep you company Day by day we'll move along Some things ache like no heartbreak I know Some things happen every day But different even so But she was the most beautiful mother She was the most beautiful mother She was your beautiful mother and One day we'll cross the sea Of black and white gray you've been adrift on I will keep you I'm out of words or wisdom But if you was Mother's Mother, performed by Taylor Noble, written by Zoe Sarnak. And if you are interested in finding out more about the wonderful composer-lyricist Zoe Sarnak, you can visit her website at www.zoesarnak.com. That's Z-O-E-S-A-R-N-A-K. Curtain Call Well, that wraps up this episode. Again, please tell your theater-loving friends. If you're a theater student, tell the people you go to school with. If you're a theater teacher, tell your students and your colleagues. Get the word out. I really like to give a little bit of of something for everybody in this show. 
Our next episode is going to be February 16th. Remember, we're the first and third Tuesday of the month. And we got some great stuff for you. We got Andrew Lippa with the Dramatist Guild Fund to talk about all their great services and why they exist. We've got Megan McGinnis, the star of Daddy Long Legs, and what a powerhouse performance that is if you have gotten a chance to see it or see the streaming version. And we've got composer Danny Ashkenazi to talk about <laughs> the creation of his uh, long and development work, Speak Easy. And we're going to feature some new work for some new composers again. If you got some works you'd like to get to us, broadwaybulletnyc at gmail.com. Thanks for tuning in. Again, uh, this is Michael Gilbo. I'm your host and also the producer. Our associate producer for this season was the wonderfully helpful Ronnie Jones. And once more, I'd like to give a very special thanks to our location sponsors for this season, which were the Dramatist Guild Fund. Wonderful place and a great resource. Take advantage of it. And you're going to find out more about it next week. And also Sheer Madness for lending us their rehearsal space. Uh, and check out the show. It really is very, very funny. All right. So see everybody back here on February 16th. So a little more about our brand new theater and business arts major. I know what most theater programs are like, and I've talked to thousands of artists. All of this told me that a new style of theater major was needed. Theater majors can get a pretty good arts education just about anywhere, but most programs do very little to prepare actors, directors, playwrights, technicians, producers, etc. to manage their careers. When you go into the arts, you are your own business, and you need to manage that to strategically plan for your career to grow. If you've listened to many of these interviews, you know you need to be self-starters to create your own opportunities. I'm going to make sure you are ready for that world. You'll get a ton of opportunities as an undergraduate. Actors will act, even as freshmen. Designers will design shows right away. Playwrights will see their shows mounted. Directors will direct. Producers will handle shows from inception to execution. Outstanding guest artists will conduct workshops, and outstanding students will even work on this podcast and travel to New York with me for interview weeks. And if that isn't enough, we've got an amazing program that will pay all or part of your student loan payments, even private loans, if you are earning less than $40,000 six months after graduation. That is an invaluable option that lets you pursue your passion in theater with less financial pressure. If interested, and I hope you are, go to broadwaybullet.com. I'd love to help you launch your career.